Hello, thanks for listening. My name is Peter. This is my podcast. Um, this one is a little bit different than some of the other episodes we've made. My friend Bill and I are talking about socialism and neoliberalism and unions and labor and Eugene Debs. Bill's a history professor um, but as he says in the podcast, he's, he's not a labor historian, but he's really interested in it. So if credentials are your thing, then, um, we've got some credentials backing up the facts in this episode. So, um, take a listen. Let me know what you think. Um, I am at PDZim. P-D-Z-I-M on Twitter. So uh, message me there, I guess. It's a good place as any. Okay. Um, enjoy this conversation. Starting still. Hey. We're live. There it goes. Hi, my name is Peter. And I'm Bill, live from the creaky chair. I'm live from the warm Minneapolis apartment. Before I moved to Minneapolis from Florida, I did not realize that Minneapolis got to be pretty hot in the summer, and I was pretty, surprised. Pretty hot, yep, pretty hot. Um, so today, I thought um, it would be interesting to ask you, Bill, questions about characters in uh, uh, socialism so to speak. Okay. Topics on socialism, characters, characters, by that I mean personages. Yeah. yeah. Because uh, we're, we're both uh, pretty lefty leaning folks. You yes, know? sir. Um, you have a piece of paper, a couple of them with your name on them from various universities. And uh, yeah, yeah. you've studied this more than I have. So, yeah. uh, right? Well, I, so I, w- I would not say I am, a, I am not a historian of socialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certainly people who are that. And I'm not even a labor historian. Mm-hmm. But I, I kind of, if I had it to do all over again, I might be. Huh. I, think that, I think that was my co- the, a calling I missed, maybe. Huh. Yeah. Still time. Yeah, I certainly could in the fu- like in sort of future research move in that direction for sure if I wanted to. Maybe I should do that while I'm while I'm working at this university. Get a get a history of labor degree. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there there's no such thing as a degree in history of labor, but you can be a specialist of labor within history. I don't think I'd want to be a historian, but I do want to know more about this stuff. Yeah. Well. Um, that's- that's very achievable. Yeah. Uh, and so I, so here's, here's how we arrived. We're, we're going to talk about, uh, I'm going to ask you questions about Eugene Debs as like sure. a guy who doesn't know much about Eugene Debs. But the reason that I thought he would be interesting to talk about, here's how I arrived at that. Yeah. I've had a people's history of the United States sitting on my bookshelf for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I've read about 20 pages into it, but, I process nonfiction better when I'm like walking around and listening to it than I do when I'm just sitting there reading it. Um, I just, I, it's hard for me to sit and read nonfiction. Um, so I can, I can take it in better and I like retain it better if I'm walking around and like listening, listening to it audibly. So I looked on our library website for the audio book for people's history and they actually had it. I was like, oh, that's great. But um, they have like 10 copies or 12 copies or something. And I'm like number 60 in line. Mm. Right. So, so it put my name on the hold list. And then it said, while you wait, you might want to check out this book by um, uh, 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 Chris Hedges yep. called The Death of the Liberal Class. And in that book, which I sort of just took on a whim, uh, he started quoting Eugene Debs like all over the place. I was like, whoa, this guy seems really interesting. He, he just had like really fiery quotes about like 
the the master class and uh, like being the one to decide when wars happen and the 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 working class sort of following along and stuff it, it was like good clear stuff that i thought would be really cool and he said a little bit about eugene debs right in his life so that's what I, that's my pre-knowledge that i'm coming into this with and a little bit of like american history from when i was an undergrad but i don't remember much yeah yeah so and then you and i then you said hey you should check out this uh called the canton speech by eugene debs right you sent me a link to that and i read most of it but uh couldn't follow some of it so well i didn't i mean i confess i didn't know all of the references in it either yeah. they were you know he drops a lot of names and in the speech that we read the version of it it was published by jacobin magazine and so the jacobin editors had inserted hyperlinks for many of his references right, um, right. but not all of them right yeah. because it's it's possible that some of the people he was referencing were just they just didn't end up you know making a huge impact once sure. you go past 1918 so they are not lost to history per se but just kind of not considered historical personages the way that many of the other people that he references are yeah well so before that speech thing though tell us what you know like who who is this guy and why should we care about him so eugene debs was a guy who he was born in the middle of the 19th century sometime and he was a labor unionist um i think as as far as i understand he got into labor unionism as a, as a young man and he also i've i've heard that he was inspired to learn about socialism from reading the works of Victor Hugo, in fact. Um, and Victor Hugo wrote... Uh, lots of Fr French novels like... Uh, oh, uh, he wrote... Um, um, Les Miserables. Yeah, Les Miserables, yeah. Yeah. In The so, Hunchback of Notre Dame also, maybe? I think so, yeah. Think so. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think that Deb's most significant sort of entry onto the historical stage came in the 1890s. He was the, the head of something that was called the American Railway Union. And in 1893, there was this event called the Great Railroad Strike, or I'm sorry, the Pullman Strike. There was a different railroad strike oh, in 1877 yeah. that was called the Great Railroad Strike. The Pullman, in fact, it was a boycott that turned into a, a strike. So um, there was this sleeping car company called Pullman Cars. And the Pullman Company, which was based in Chicago, was a huge company in railroad cars. They made a significant percentage of all the railroad cars on all the tracks in America. Um, and it was a very much, the factory was very much a company town kind of situation. So the workers at the Pullman factory lived in Pullman's housing and they, uh, were paid partially not in like actual money but in scrip that they could only pay that they could only use at the pullman store mm -hmm. you know so this is a, an extreme example of you know almost enclave capitalism where these workers are are very much attached to the company anyway there was an economic depression in 1893 because of like banking bubbles and um the pullman company announced that they were going to lower the wages of all of the workers. And those, um, and furthermore, they announced that they were gonna start automatically deducting the monthly rent payments from the workers' paychecks. So not only are the workers getting paid less, but they are, um, the, the, you know, the rent for their housing is gonna be automatically taken out of their paychecks. And I believe that, that at the same time, there was like a dividend payment given to Pullman stockholders or something like that. So it was just, you know, blatant, blatant robber baron, gilded age, gilded age bullshit. Mm -hmm. Nothing like this ever happens anymore in the United States. Thankfully, everything is fine now. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, for sure. So the Pullman workers went on strike and um, the American Railway Union uh, of which Eugene Debs was, I think, the leader of it, or one of the leaders of it, 
in solidarity with the Pullman strikers, organize a boycott of Pullman cars all over the United States. So the idea is, if you are a railroad worker, of which many, many Americans were, because back in those days, robots couldn't drive the trains, mm -hmm. um, you, you, if you participated in the boycott, what you would do is, if a train came into your you know, roundhouse or your switching station and it had Pullman cars, the boycott was that you would refuse to service that train. You would refuse to switch it or whatever. And because so many of the trains in America had Pullman cars, this boycott quickly led to a pretty much kind of a shutdown of the railways. Like freight was not moving mm -hmm. um, in America. And this is one of the most important things about mass strike action because strikes are most effective when they kind of target the choke points of an economy. And the railroads in 1893 America were absolutely pretty much the major choke point of the economy. Yeah, I mean, maybe <clears throat> this is obvious, but it's like, uh, it wouldn't quite have the same effect today. Like it would have a partial effect today, but there's lots of semis that are also pulling freight, right? So somebody- Yes. So somebody strikes on the railway, like it's definitely gonna affect some businesses, but also right. there's semis hauling stuff everywhere. Absolutely. And I'm assuming yep. there wasn't semis back then. Nope, nope, there were not. Um, pretty much trains were the only way of moving freight. Yeah. So, uh, and, and ships of course, but. Um, so anyway, the boycott spreads all over America and there's intense um, pressure by the capitalist class to get the trains going again, to, to sort of end this strike. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the federal courts in Chicago, actually the courts issued an injunction that um, participating in the boycott was illegal. And that mm. furthermore, making speeches in support of the boycott was tantamount to like inciting a riot. I might yeah. have some of those details slightly wrong, but that was basically the, the, basically the court system, rather than siding with the strikers, sides with the, railway, the railroad companies. And mm. it, not only that, but the courts essentially criminalize what Debs was doing, giving speeches. This, so, this, thing, this thing I'm reading says that the U.S. federal government obtained a junction, it, an injunction against the strike on the theory that the strikers had obstructed the U.S. mail. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's the detail I was forgetting. And so Debs um, knows that if he gives another speech, he could be arrested for inciting a riot. He gives another speech and he gets arrested, not for the first time and not for the last time. Well, actually, maybe it was the first time. But it certainly wasn't for the last time that he mm -hmm. would get arrested. Um, and the strike falls apart. Uh, there was uh, violence, um, police in Chicago. Um, uh, I believe the military was, was called out. Um, something like 25 of the strikers are killed in, in clashes. And the strike falls apart. Um, the strike is defeated, mm. uh, ultimately. And Debs, I think it's after this strike that Debs realizes that you've got um, the people need more political power, right? That the, the, the court system is gonna keep going against the workers unless the workers have more political power. And furthermore, um, the railroad system is gonna keep screwing over working people un unless it's controlled by the people rather than private individuals. So this is why Debs forms the Socialist Party. And he runs, he forms the American Socialist Party and he's its presidential candidate on five different occasions beginning oh, in 1900 okay. and in 1920 he got a million votes um which is you know less than the republicans and democrats got but it was a very significant it was something like 10 percent of all the votes in that okay. election i didn't realize that he founded the uh american socialist party yeah i think he was the founder of it or, or one of the founders oh okay yeah interesting yeah, okay. and, and, and then the speech that we read, the Canton speech, was a, a speech he gave against America's participation in World War I. And that also got him arrested um, mm -hmm. and charged with uh, sedition or espionage. And that also got him thrown in jail. Um, and he was given a 10-year sentence, but he got out after like a year and a half because um, his sentence was commuted by President Harding. So, and then yeah. he died in, I think, 1926.
Yeah, it said he died from complications from uh, some kind of disease that he con- contracted in prison, and oh, they had to they had to uh, admit him to a sanatorium mm. due to cardiovascular problems. I see. Um, and yeah, that uh, the yeah, and he was for that speech. He was jailed for sedition. Sedition. Yeah. 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 Um, the, yeah. Huh. One of the things that really struck me about the Canton speech is, is how, uh, how the, the issues he's raising have not gone away. So yeah. early in the speech, he's talking about how, uh, Teddy Roosevelt during world war one was, you know, extremely pro war Teddy Roosevelt, he was no longer president at that time, but he was very much in support of the war and was all about America going and making the world safe for democracy and so forth. But Debs points out how not that long before Teddy Roosevelt had gone and been like wined and dined by the German Kaiser and yeah. just said all these nice things. Oh, the Kaiser's so great. The Kaiser's government is so wonderful. And I was like, well, this is just like how, you know, in the 1980 in the 1980s when iraq was at war with iran we just you know buttered ourselves up to saddam hussein and gave him a lot of military aid and you know went over there and shook his hand and called him an ally of america blah 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 oh and then a few years later when he invaded kuwait it's like oh man we all got to get saddam hussein now yeah right and it's exactly the same thing the kaiser was great and then he invaded then he invaded france and then the kaiser wasn't great I mean, I, I bet we could draw parallels to today, too. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's quite to that degree, maybe. But, I mean, Trump's definitely shaking hands with Putin and saying he's not yep. that bad of a guy. Right. And, yep. yeah, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the one quick little paragraph quote from the Canton speech where he talks about the Kaiser, he's, he's referring to Theodore Roosevelt, and he says, he visited Potsdam while the Kaiser was there, and according to the accounts published in the American newspapers, he and the Kaiser were soon on the most familiar terms. They were mm-hmm. hilariously intimate with each other <laughs> and slapped each other on the back. Yep. After if, you're into, if you're into mustache porn, you can do some good fanfic about that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and after Roosevelt, uh, continuing the quote, after Roosevelt had reviewed the Kaiser's troops, According to the same accounts, he became enthusiastic over the Kaiser's legions and said, if I had that kind of army, I could conquer the world. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very, it, just sim- like similar to the, the Trump rhetoric. You know, what did he say? What did he say recently? Um, I, ab- I, have, I can absolutely pardon myself, but I'm not going to because I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Ugh. Oh man. Yeah, it's terrible. And you know, and 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 other things uh as well, which is um socialism has always been a very internationalist movement. Um mm-hmm. you know, socialism has almost always made common cause with with the downtrodden of other countries. It was it was always anti-colonialist as well, and it always made very clear connections between, you know, the uh, seeking of territory in Africa, um, you know, that, you know, socialists, not, I mean, you can find exceptions, of course, but in general, um, socialism was always very inter- internationalist and anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that really shines through in the, in the Canton speech as well. Yeah. I, yeah, I think so. From, from what I read, I need to reread it again. It was a lot. I, I allotted myself. Well, I can read it in like fifteen minutes. It's a long speech. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's like a. It'll take you about a forty-five minutes to read or so. Yeah, I think so. Um, the do you know what? So throughout the speech, he refers to the Wall Street junkers. Yeah. Junkers. Yeah. Do you know what that refers to? What yeah. So, um, so the reason that he's using that word so much is because of the World War One context. So in Prussia. The basically the name of the landed aristocracy in Prussia were Junkers. That's oh, like okay. the, it's a name for you know the the upper class of of Prussia, 
And of course, the upper class of Prussia are the people who became the leaders of unified Germany. And the leaders of unified Germany became the ones that, you know, were the militarists that started World War I. Although they didn't start World War I, they just, you know, they jumped in seizing an opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and so when he's talking about the Wall Street Junkers, he's sort of rhetorically saying, you know, the, the upper class of the United States is just like these upper class Prussians that we claim to be enemies with. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. It, it's funny, even it, this speech was written in 1915, and it's like, it could be a Bernie Sanders speech. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, the, the, wall, the Wall Street problems are still like, Wall Street bankers are, you know, held up to as that same sort of thing. Yep. Uh, how many years? Over a hundred years. Yep. Hundred years um, ago. And I think it was. It it must have been a little. I think it was maybe 1917 because it seems like the U.S. is already in the war at this point, and that happened in, in 1917. Um, oh, okay. Not to be too pedantic. <laughs> yeah. No. Be be the pedant. It's yeah. fine. Um, there was there's just so many quotes in here that I feel like still apply, but I scrolled in I, I scrolled in and then I lost it. Or, 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 oh yeah, he, here he says, uh, they tell us that we live in a great free republic, that our institutions are democratic, that we are a free and self-governing people. This is too much, even for a joke. <laughs> But it is not a subject for levity. It is an exceedingly serious manner. Um, yeah. I yeah. Sorry, my browser quit unexpectedly. Oh, you back? Yeah, I'm back now. But I missed maybe the last thirty seconds. Oh, oh, I was just reading. Uh, er, 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 let's get it back. I was just reading this quote and saying like it still applies today. This quote where he says, uh, "They tell us that we live in a great free republic, that our institutions are democratic." that we are a free and self-governing people. This is too much, even for a joke, but it is not a subject for levity is an exceedingly serious man. Anyway, right. yeah, uh, man, the, what, what do you think, what do you think we can glean from this stuff? And uh, what, what do we do about it today, Bill? Oh, and then let's put you on the spot. That's super. <laughs> so I think that I agree with you that it could be a Bernie Sanders speech, but I think that even Bernie Sanders didn't go quite as far as no, Eugene yeah. Debs, right? And I, there's this part of me that that wonders if you just went that far, what would happen, right? If mm -hmm. if there was a if there was a, a popular American politician or a popular American figure that that went as far as Debs does and what he says, mm -hmm. what would be the reaction? And I I don't know, right? The mm -hmm. optimistic part of me wants to believe that it would make a huge impact and that it would cause a lot of people to kind of consider, oh man, you know, how come that, how come when I go to work for eight hours, I create more value than they pay to me? Like, why yeah. do they, why do they get to take more than I, more money than what I generated for them? Right. Uh, but I don't I mean, know if people will see that. Like, so this, you know, thinking of other socialists, right. You know, one of the things that, that, you know, it's interesting. I've got this book on my table. I keep meaning to, um, I keep meaning to read. Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 I um, got it for the library at my university. And I now, since it's summer, I can finally actually read some of the books I ordered for the library. But anyway, it's, it's called, it's by a historian called John Tutino and it's called the Mexican heartland. And the title of the book is How Communities Shaped Capitalism, a Nation, and World History. And one of the things that, um, maybe this is a joke, maybe this is, you know, um, this is going to be an exaggeration or hyperbole, okay. but you can almost be certain that if a work of history has capitalism in the title, you can almost be certain that is a work of Marxist history, right? <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. Like, no, no capitalist writes the history of capitalism. <laughs> right. Because right. because the capitalists believe that it's just the laws of nature, right? They don't believe it's a thing that that has a history. They think it's just it just is. 
It just has always been and always will be because it is just natural and logical and correct. So how I, do you write a history of something that's natural and logical and correct? Now, and yeah. can, I, can I just interject really yeah. quick? Yeah. Uh, and maybe this is implicit, maybe I'm stating the obvious, but I think that the reason they do that is because if you stop and start thinking about it, then mm -hmm. it's like uh, seeing, you know, that it's like going behind the curtain and finding the Wizard of Oz is just some right. dude, you know, yep. like yep. exactly. That, yeah. Anyway, exactly. keep going. Now, yeah. So clearly, there are exceptions. Like clearly, there are capitalists who you know write about capitalism as a thing that has a history, mm -hmm. but but that's not the political project of capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. Like the people who write about the history of capitalism in that way, they don't do that for the mass audience. Right. Any mm -hmm. anything written for the mass audience is about how like I think of Thomas Friedman is the worst example of this book, this fucking Thomas Friedman is this guy who just writes all these books about how, you know, the neoliberal way of the world is just so amazing. Like he's got this book, The Lexus and the Olive Tree, and the world is flat and how globalization has just finally kind of brought the world into can, the place it's supposed to be. Can I um, ask you a, a clarifying question? Yeah. I, this is a genuine question, and I think yeah. I've pieced it together. Yeah. What do people mean when they say neoliberal or neoliberalism? Oh man. Okay. What this is, is a what big. Is that? This is big. This okay. is a big conversation. What do you, so? First of all, the answer to that question you just asked is: you ask ten different people, they'll give you ten different answers. <laughs> can I tell so, you what I? Can I yes. Tell you what I think. Yes. So, uh, and, and this is sort of based on that Chris Hedges book that's that's talking about like the death of liberalism, right? Mm -hmm. Like, right. The, or the death of, death of the liberal class. So, liberalism, as Chris Hedges sort of describes it, is far far more left than what liberalism is today. So, he, I think, if I were defining it with his book, I would say neoliberalism is um, like. Uh, in it's liberal in name only kind of mm -hmm. that and makes yeah and it's a uh, kind of concerned with not rocking the boat too too much uh being involved in power not in the same way as um as a uh, like conservatives are but liking the power that it has in the arts but mm -hmm. too afraid to like shake that power up by making meaningful art you mm -hmm. know so mm -hmm. sort of just playing it safe and like, you know, like we talked about on that previous podcast, like, I'm going to write this think piece. Yeah. <laughs> and well, and yeah. Uh, yeah, so I don't know that I quite defined neoliberal, but anyway, that's sort of the gist I get. So, what so I think that neoliberalism is almost like the, the parable about the blind men describing the elephant. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. like you can describe its effects and you can, you can describe its sort of, features, but it's mm. very hard to just to, to come up with one single sentence or two sentences that just say it. Mm. But, mm. but I'll try. Okay. So mm -hmm. the way I think about it um, is, first of all, liberalism, the, the liberalism that is the neo. So first, you have to go back to what I sort of will sometimes call classical liberalism. Mm -hmm. And I think it mostly has to do with economics. Mm. So <clears throat> The weird thing about the United States is the word liberal, the way we most commonly use it, is, is a weird definition because um, it came about sort of during the time of the, the New Deal and it, it has come to mean kind of the left sort of broadly, mm -hmm. but it's not really used that way in most other countries and it didn't always mean that. So, so classical liberalism is the foundational belief that the the market must do what the market does like economic liberalism is this belief that the market forces are the most efficient that the market left unfettered and unregulated is the most creative and the best way of doing things and that government's role in the economy should be as small as possible that's right? that's market liberalism yeah that's liberalism huh. Huh. yeah okay weird all right yeah yeah and so uh like adam smith uh, is considered sort of a founding father of liberalism. John Locke is considered a founding father of liberalism of that type. Um, then 
there was the political side of, of liberalism from the enlightenment, which was that individual rights are very important. Everybody should have individual rights to, to press, to assembly, to religion, and that sort of thing. So one way you could kind of think of classical liberalism is think of like the founding fathers of the United States, right? Think of like mm -hmm. the ideas of the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. That's a pretty good example of, of sort of classical liberalism. Mm -hmm. Neoliberalism, I think, is mostly concerned with the economic side of things. And it, it's, a, it's sort of a political project that comes out of the 1970s when as a reaction to uh, the, wealth, the growth of the welfare state. You know, in most countries in the world over the course of the 20th century, the state got really, really big. Like the state took a larger role in regulating the economy. The state took a larger role in pension systems. The state took a larger role in healthcare systems. Basically, the state involvement in the economy just grew a lot. Mm -hmm. Not as much in the United States as in like most countries in Europe, but still a pretty significant amount in the United States. So neoliberalism represents this, 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 try to, this push to try to shrink the size of the state once again and shrink the involvement of the state in the economy. And it involves a great deal of faith in, once again, market forces, a great deal of faith in the idea that the market is the most creative, the free market holds the solutions to our problems, um, and furthermore, that society functions best when society is made up of individuals rather than groups. Um, one thing, so, go ahead. Just to clarify, so do conservatives, like do Republicans, do like, you know, people who uh, watch Fox News and mm -hmm. uh, like Donald Trump, right. do it, is it common that they identify themselves as neoliberals? Nobody or? calls themselves a neoliberal. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody uses that moniker for themselves. Okay. Um, so uh, it's it's almost always used as an epithet. But I don't think that makes it wrong. But you know, it's an interesting problem that no one calls themselves that. So um, conservatives, like Republicans, mm -hmm. um, I think most Republicans are neoliberals because most Republicans are advancing this agenda of um, shrinking the state deregulating the economy, empowering corporations, and so forth. Many Democrats also do that, but they do it what they, they do it in a fashion that is trying to put a slightly more humane face on it. Right? Mm -hmm. So a, a, a critic of neoliberalism, like myself, might say <laughs> that Republicans are just out and out neoliberals. Democrats are neoliberals, but they're trying to pretend like they're not. Yeah, right? yeah. I can see and, that. And there's all these other pernicious effects of, 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 of neoliberalism. Like, uh, I think one of the most, uh, I think one of the most sort of crystallized examples of neoliberalism came from Margaret Thatcher when in an interview at one point when she was prime minister, um, she, some the interviewer was, was, you know, sort of, asking her about her political program in Britain, which involved a lot of privatization, a lot of deregulation, a lot of cracking down on unions and so forth. Um, and the interviewers made some comment about like, well, do you think that these reforms are, are for the good of society? And what Margaret Thatcher said, I think was a moment in which the curtain was pulled back a little bit. What Margaret Thatcher said was, well, there's, but there's no such thing as society. There, are, there are individual people and there are families. So Ooh. she's pushing back against the notion that there's a common good, right? And so in the most crystallized neoliberal mindset, you've got this idea that, look, everybody out there is an island. Everybody is an individual. And a citizen of a country is no more than an individual who has to make the right economic choice whenever they're faced with the choice, right? Mm -hmm. they, uh, everybody, we're all just out there in the economy and your job is to make the best economic decisions for yourself and for your family. Oh my and, God. And if you didn't make the right economic decisions, oh. that's on you, right? Well, just saying that, saying it like that gives me like, 
uh, uh, stomach anxiety. Oh yeah, and, me too, me oh, too. But I, I really God. think that's I really think that's the sort of neoliberal attitude in its sort of purest form. Right. I, there's. <laughs> uh, I have heard. Hmm. I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. Mm -hmm. I do not. I do not agree with what it, with with what I'm about to say. Right. I am trying, I'm struggling with it to understand how it ties in with all of this stuff. Right. I have heard people say, based on, you know, keeping people thinking about each other as individuals, I have heard like people say about Democrats today and liberals and, you know, like mm -hmm. actual liberal types, lefty right. types today. The best thing that we can do to benefit uh, conservatives is to keep talking about identity politics. Hmm. Have you, have you I heard have that of, too? I have a lot of thoughts on this as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, and, and I'm on the one hand, like, uh, I, and I have to divorce myself completely from like, from like emotions on this. But if I, if I were to think about it, like on the one hand, it makes sense what they say, right? Like mm -hmm. if you keep people splintered and keep them, Thinking and talking about, you know, what whatever identity politics, whatever you want to call that, is right. Uh, then it would follow that people would just be most concerned about, you know, their their own specific niche thing. Right. However, the opposite side of that, though, is if we are concerned with identity politics, which I think means uh, being sensitive to uh, all gender identities and and all genders and like sexualities right. and stuff that I think if we do, if we do pay attention to that stuff, then yeah. that will bring us more together because right. we will be, uh, we'll all, we'll all be in the shit together and mm -hmm. supporting one another. Right. That's my, that's my quick little shorthand. I think. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. And in fact, what you just said is what identity politics was always supposed to be. Yeah. The term identity politics was coined by a bunch of black lesbians, black mm -hmm. socialist lesbians in the 80s, <laughs> who, yeah. who were like, okay, they were, what they were trying to do is they were trying to maintain socialist politics and maintain sort of economically left-wing politics while also bringing in the realities of the fact that there are a variety of different identities that we have as we live in this society. Mm -hmm. So, so, so to, to use like a, like a straw man argument here for a second. So mm -hmm. think of, you know, you and I were both big Bernie Sanders supporters, but think of the like obnoxious Bernie Sanders supporters. Like yeah. think of the, the asshole guys that are like, you need to shut up about identity politics, man. This is both right. So uh, what the way the way that they're saying that, I think they are mostly making a straw man argument. I really do. I think they are. Mm, I think yeah. they are positing that there are people out there who only care about you know whatever identity they are, and mm -hmm. I don't think that that's largely true. I think that there's maybe a few people like that, but I think that the vast majority of people care also about economic issues. But they want to make sure that, you know, if there are going to be economic reforms made, it needs to make sure that it happens in a way that does lift all boats. I guess mm -hmm. what they would say is a rising tide does not necessarily lift all boats mm -hmm. right? because mm -hmm. some of the boats have holes in them still. Right. And a yes. rising tide isn't going to lift the boats with holes in them. So we need to both rise the tide, but also fix the holes in the boats. Yeah. Um, right. And I think right. that you can you can point to the New Deal as an example of how lots of people benefited from the New Deal, but a lot of people didn't benefit nearly as much or at all because they were members of certain identities that were like disadvantaged and did not have the privilege of others, right? Mm -hmm. So if you were if you were a white guy who worked in a kind of factory job in the New Deal, you did great, and people like you did great for the next several decades. But if you were like a black farm worker, you were not initially eligible for social security. You were not initially uh, included in minimum wage and maximum hours laws. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. You know, if you were a woman who was a school teacher, you were not initially eligible for social security and so mm -hmm. forth and so on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that a lot of the people who didn't like Bernie Sanders, I think where their dislike of Bernie Sanders came from was at some level, something that I grant them, which is that he wasn't, Bernie was not always good at talking about these issues in a way that indicated he was aware of those potential problems. Uh, right, yeah, and therefore, if it, right, I'm, I'm, I might be mirroring back at you exactly what you just said, but yeah, therefore, since he wasn't good at that, that open that sort of opened the door for these like quote Bernie Bros who yeah. who would do that that like shouting down of identity politics and stuff. Yes, yes, yeah. I think so. I think yeah. so. And in fact, you know, I think in fact, if you looked at Bernie's like proposals on his website, they were great on all of those things. They really were. Like mm -hmm. he had really, really good stuff in terms of the concrete proposals on his website, but Many of those things were added a little bit late in the game. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't necessarily do the best job of bringing those into his stump speeches. Um, and he didn't really do enough. He didn't have, you know, unfortunately, to win the Democratic primary, there are certain sort of like song and, a, song and dance kind of hoops you have to jump through, glad-handing with the right people. And he just didn't do that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so he didn't win. <laughs> he got close, but he didn't win. Yeah. Yeah. How, um, let's see, do we want to, do we want to bring it back to, to Debs and close yeah. it out somehow? Cause so, so I think Debs, Debs is interesting because so, um, Debs is also talking about a time at which a real alternative to capitalism was entering the world. And what's interesting about this is that you can see all of the optimism around the Soviet union, like. It was a beacon of hope to people. It really was. Yeah, I I noticed, <clears throat> and maybe we should do this in a in a follow up or something. But like yeah. he's talking about Lenin and Trotsky. Yeah, I know nothing about Oof. those people. Yeah, man, I and, I know a little bit about Lenin and Trotsky. Um, all right, well, not, maybe not super much, but I I know enough to you know have a conversation sort of equivalent to this one <laughs> yeah yeah that'd be cool we should do that um because um, because i've always i get uh, the, and i'm get, i'm just gonna admit my ignorance i get lenin and stalin confused yeah <laughs> their names are similar yeah. i'm like wait and they, were both, they were both uh uh code names N neither of those were their real name oh interesting yeah interesting yeah like and and so it, i get confused when i see these socialist guys like Debs saying, and then Lenin, you know, yep. wait, wasn't that? So uh, anyway, keep going. Yes. So, 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 so then the Soviet Union, you know, was this big socialist model for other people to follow. Now, of course, there were things that were about the Soviet Union that were just absolutely horrible. Um, but so one, this kind of goes back to neoliberalism for a second. Mm -hmm. This is a, I can't remember where I, I stole this from, but someone, described neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is what capitalism becomes when it no longer has a genuine rival to keep it honest, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So like neoliberalism kind of begins in the 70s but it strengthens through the 80s and 90s. And then in the 90s, it's like completely, you know, all bets are off because you can, you can make a, a sort of very honest historical argument that as long as the Soviet Union existed, um, American capitalism was forced to, you know, was forced to be honest, right? There were certain breaks on the excesses of capitalism in the sense that it had to vie with the fact that there was this uh, viable socialist model in the world. And if you were oh, a see. socialist movement, you could get funding from the USSR. Right? I see. Yeah, because they, they were cap, they were communist and right. And they were this huge superpower right. in the world. Right. Yeah. And if you look at, for example, now looking at the state of labor or the state of labor unions is not the whole story, not by any means. But like mm -hmm. unionization, levels of unionization were so much, so much higher during the Cold War than they are now. Mm -hmm. um, because I think so there was this guy, Francis Fukuyama, wrote this essay called The End of History. And mm -hmm. nobody really agrees with his thesis any longer. But the thesis of the end of history is like, well, now that the Cold War is over, 
right? We've kind of reached, you know, the, the full development of society. You know, American style capitalism is what it is. And that's just kind of, you know, it won and it has been proven right. And so, in, you know, now there's not really yeah. any contest out there in the world any longer. Oh my God. No one really thinks that anymore, but you can kind of see in neoliberalism, like capitalism, American style capitalism is like, oh, we can do anything. Right, we can. Yeah, we can do anything now. We can, we can outsource jobs. We can go after unions. We can get rid of regulations. We can allow for the creation of the financial, you know, industry. I mean, that's another thing that the '70s and '80s brought us. Like, finance was always a means to an end rather than an end in itself. Right, the financial mm -hmm. industry was about actually financing things, like you know, building dams and building factories. Mm -hmm. Now yeah. the financial industry is like this sort of alchemistic way of kind of putting a bunch of money together and then sort of magically it makes more money. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, um, hedge funds and whatnot, whatever those exactly. are. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. we're in the middle of another, you know, the, the housing bubble and then we've got a credit card bubble. We've got a student loan bubble. We just got bubbles. It's bubbles all the way down. <laughs> it's bubbles all the way down. I, yeah. I mean, there, I forget where I heard this story. So I don't know. I, I it's it's going to be a fruitless story. It's something about like a teacher was trying to illustrate something about um, how the the errors of capitalism, and and he was trying to. He said he is the boss in charge of all of the in charge of all of these students, and he points at his students and says like. You students are the workers. I control how much you get to eat. I control how much you get paid. And therefore, I control like where you get to live and how much free time you have. Um, I, am in, I am the person in control of all of that stuff. Uh, so what do you have that I don't have? Uh, you know, something like that. And mm. then, and then it's like a class of fifth graders. Where did I hear this story? I don't remember. Um, and then there's a pause, and the and one of the kids goes, "There's more of us than there are of you." Yeah. And I feel like may, maybe that's maybe that's kind of a basic uh, bow to put on all of this. But I think that's what Debs offers is like if we can if we can get some fucking unions going right you know like there right. are so many people that are getting screwed over by all of this stuff yeah and and it, we just we just got to get our there's more of us than there are of them right <laughs> yeah like, and, and way and, more yeah and i think that the teacher strikes that happened this spring were really encouraging because public opinion was mostly with them and strikes work right Strikes yeah. have the potential to gain the sympathy of of most people. Um, yeah, like I, I would just I would just love it so much if I woke up one morning and the news headline was, "None of the workers at Amazon warehouses came into work today." <laughs> How great would that be? Or or yeah. even better, all of the Amazon workers are refusing to leave the warehouse. They're doing a sit down strike. Yeah, like all of the Amazon warehouses across the country. Yeah, like imagine the power of that. Yeah. Just imagine, I, but it, the uh, that that Chris Hedges book that I was reading, it mm -hmm. was saying that one of the reasons that the, the you know his whole thesis is like death of the liberal class. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons he's saying that that's not going to happen is because the liberal like liberals, and I guess by that I'm saying like most commonly mm -hmm. just the Democratic Party, right? Part of our identity is that we're like these polite people. Mm -hmm. who are well-spoken and, uh, you know, we're like lawyers and professors and dentists and, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah. we don't have time to get our hands dirty with these things, but we'll, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it a lot. Right. <laughs> but, and I'm laughing because that's what I do. Right. Know? Right. Well, and that's sort of the thesis. That's sort of the Thomas Frank thesis. There's this guy, Thomas Frank wrote this book, Listen Liberal. Whatever happened to the party of the people? Or something oh, right, like that. right, right. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. And he kind of says the same thing that sort of the the Democratic Party um, kind of fell in love with the sort of professional class, uh -huh. um, and kind of left behind the working class. Now, 
I say that, and it sounds like I'm playing into this Trump and Trump narrative, and I don't mean to play into the Trump narrative, because you know, so many think pieces have been written about how the Democratic Party doesn't appeal to regular Joe six packs anymore, and it's like, okay, it, nor does it appeal to millions and millions of Black and Hispanic and Asian working class people. Yep. Like yep. voter turnout, low voter turnout is not because those people are bad. Right, you see that so much. It's like, oh, these people—they don't vote. It's like, oh, well, they no. don't feel yeah. compelled to vote for this. Right, right, right. Yeah. And yes, I understand the frustration. Yes, it's like, okay, if you said that there was no difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, that was dumb. Clearly, if this was a Hillary Clinton administration, things would not be as bad as they are now. There's no question in my mind that things would be a lot better than they are now. Right. But that doesn't mean that the people who didn't feel inspired to go vote we're wrong in not right. feeling inspired to go vote. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, you so. can't, it's, it's like, this is a really bad, this is, this is maybe not the best analogy, but it's like, uh, you know, blaming, blaming a user for the bad program that you created. Right. <laughs> and they're not wanting to use it. Well, yep. it does all that you want it to do. Yeah, but yep. I don't like the, like, yeah. yeah. Yep. And I mean, you know, and and let's be clear, there has been a lot of very, very nasty voter the voter suppression kind of measures put in. Oh God, that has yeah. absolutely had an effect. I I recognize that one hundred percent, and that is something that we have to fight against tooth and nail, and we have to try to restore the right to vote as something that is widely available and easy to do. Yeah. All of that said. I still think that there's a problem in terms of like giving something, giving people something that they really want to go vote for in the affirmative. You know? Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And and that and then that ties it back to that. Uh, what, what was the guy's name? Monbiot. George yep. Monbiot. Right. His whole uh, uh, idea that um, we don't have a story anymore. The redemptionist which, narrative. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're throwing facts at people and trying to like. Um, get people emotionally tied into a thing with facts and it's just not going to work. Right. Like, yep. Yeah. You got to have that redemption. Yep. And Debs was really good at, at uh, rabble rousing. Wait, let me read that thing that I texted to you. Maybe we'll close on that. What do you think? All right. Sounds good. <laughs> I'm not going to do this justice at all. We need to get Mark Ruffalo. Uh, yeah. We got to get Mark Ruffalo up in here. The world. Wait. Yeah, the world is daily changing before our eyes. The sun of capitalism is setting. The sun of socialism is rising. Oh, no, it didn't. It is our duty to build the new nation and the free republic. We need industrial and social builders. We socialists are the builders of the beautiful world that is to be. We are all pledged to do our part. We are inviting, I challenging you this afternoon in the name of your own manhood and womanhood. Uh... Hopefully, I'd like to think he would include personhood, you know, yeah. or something in there if, if it was today. To so join us and do your part. In due time, the hour will strike and this great cause triumphant, the greatest in history, will proclaim the emancipation of the working class and the brotherhood of all mankind. <laughs> that is so over the top at the end. Yep. It's great. Oh, man. All right, man. Well, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. We should, uh, man, maybe we could do one about hegemony and Gramsci. But I, yeah. so I, the other day I was like, I think I sold my Gramsci book. Uh, Antonio Gramsci was this Italian Marxist. And I, th I don't have his book anymore. So I got to get another copy of it. Got to get it. Got to get yeah. it. All right. Well, All yeah. Right. I, that I'd was fun. All right. That was fun. All right. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stop recording. Okay. Okay. Bye.